you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ruth, Pastor Bruce continues in his sermon series, Finding Hope in a Disappointing World. Perhaps my favorite title so far is today's, The Best is Yet to Come. So turn to Ruth chapter 4 and stand for scripture reading. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can take one of the pew Bibles there in front of you, and it is on page 156 in the pew Bible. Again, turn to Ruth chapter 4, as we look at how God shows Ruth and Naomi that the grace that he's already bestowed on them is not yet done, but the best is yet to come. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of Ruth 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friends, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem it, my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders of the, of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's and from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the women who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephathra and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Amminadab. Amminadab begot Nashon. 
and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed and we are in awe of your grace that you have bestowed on us. That first that we can come before you today in worship. But then as we read your scripture and we just see the plans that you have laid out. And God, we just thank you so much that you are a God with plans. You are a God that has things set in line. That your will will be done. And God, even in the course of this story, we just thank you as we have learned from it. How that you are a provider for us and that you are a provider of a redeemer for us. God, we thank you. We thank you that we can love you and that we can worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have ever seen the movie, the Disney movie, Aladdin? Raise your hand if you've seen Aladdin. Oh, several of you have. I think it came out in the early 90s. And uh, it's, it's really, to summarize the story, it's a story about Aladdin and his genie that he finds. And kind of give you a synopsis of the story. Uh, when Aladdin is trapped in the Cave of Wonders, he finds this golden lamp. And of course, what do you do when you find a golden lamp? You rub it. And so he rubs it to wipe off the dust, and out it comes the genie, who in the movie, the voice is played by none other than Robin Williams. And the genie quickly befriends Aladdin, and because he's a genie, he's bound to give Aladdin three wishes. And of course, the first wish Aladdin uses is to get out of the cave that he is stuck in. Uh, The second wish he uses is to make himself into a prince so that he could woo Jasmine, the princess. And then he's about to use his third wish when the magic lamp is stolen by Jafar. And not to tell you the whole story of the movie, but there's in this uh, series of surprising twists and turns in the movie, Aladdin finally recovers the golden lamp, and he uses his third wish to free Genie, who then lives with him in his palace. And that's kind of the story of Aladdin. So now you don't have to watch the movie. I just gave it to you. Now, just think about this with me. Dream a little bit. Can you imagine finding a golden lamp with a genie inside. Now that would be cool, wouldn't it? I mean, at one point in the story, genie describes to Aladdin the concept of what it's like to have a genie, and he says, all the power of the universe in this little bitty lamp. Now I love that idea. I don't know if you love that idea, but I love it. I love, can you imagine having all the power in the universe in a little bitty tiny lamp that you could just kind of rub, and out pops this genie, and it does whatever you wish. At least you have three of them. I think we all feel that way sometimes when we face our disappointments in life. We would love to have a lamp to rub, and out pops a genie who will just magically deliver us from our disappointments in life. We rub it, presto, and they're gone. We're at a different time in life. The disappointments are now happy times. The circumstances around us are changed. But the reality is we don't live in a Disney world, do we? We wish we could all go to Disney world, live there for a few weeks, but we don't. We don't have a golden lamp with a genie inside who can deliver us from our our heartaches, our problems, our complications and frustrations in life. Instead, we have 
the God of the universe, who we are sovereignly ruled by. And although he is all-powerful, he is all-wise, he is not a genie who can be controlled by us. Now, there's no doubt that God's approach to our disappointments in life, well, shall we say, is very different from our approach. Vastly different from our own approach. But here's the good news. God's approach to our disappointments is far superior to our approach. In fact, God's approach is far superior to any genie's approach that we could wish for. This is what we're going to see today in the final chapter of the book of Ruth as we conclude our series, Finding Hope in a Disappointing World. In fact, chapter 4 here, it kind of climaxes the whole book with the main lesson of the book of Ruth. And you say, well, what is the main lesson of the book of Ruth? Notice this coming up on the screen. Here's the lesson. If we can state it in one big idea, one sentence of the book of Ruth, that God will deliver his people from disappointment. And we all shout, amen, hallelujah, celebration. We're happy about that. So God will deliver his people from disappointment, and he will do so in the most surprising ways. Think about this with me. The best movies, the best novel that you've ever read, they are all filled with what? Surprises. In fact, that's what keeps our attention in the movies, what keeps us wanting to read the next chapter in the book. The plot twist, and it turns this way and that way, and we're never quite sure where the movie is taking us or where the book is going to go next. And last week in Ruth chapter 3, we saw a twist-worthy, well, one of my favorite movies, of a Jason Bourne movie. When Ruth discovered to her surprise that there was another kinsman redeemer closer than Boaz. Now, in one sense, that meant that Ruth's fundamental need of security and rest was already resolved. I mean, one way or another, Ruth was going to be taken care of through her marriage to either Boaz or to this Mr. So-and-so that she has never met before. And yet, in another sense, we are still in suspense about Ruth's future. I mean, would Ruth end up being married to Boaz or this mysterious Mr. So-and-so? And even though we haven't met this man, we all instinctively feel that, listen, that guy can't possibly be the right man for Ruth. No way can she marry him. So how will the story of Ruth end? Who will she marry? And what about her mother-in-law, Naomi? I mean, what will happen to her? Well, these are the questions that chapter 4 will answer for us. And what we'll see in this chapter is that the best is yet to come. Why? Because God will deliver his people from disappointment, but he will do it in the most surprising ways. And so all through the book of Ruth, it has been building to a crescendo here in Ruth chapter 4, where the best is yet to come. But what we find is that God delivers it in the most surprising ways. And what I want to do is show you three ways that God will surprise us in his deliverance. Three ways in which the best is yet to come. Number one, but God will surprise you with his methods in which he delivers us. He will surprise us with his methods. And here's what I mean by that. 
The life of God's people, the life, your life as a child of God, as a Christ follower, my life as a Christ follower, is not always like an interstate through the plains of Kansas. How many of you travel through this great state of Kansas? Yes. How many have done it with kids? Yes, that's a joy too, isn't it? We're getting ready to do that over the holidays, not Thanksgiving, but New Year's. I'm looking forward to it with two boys. We won't go any further. But unfortunately, our lives are not always an interstate through the plains of Kansas. Instead, it's more like a state road through the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. There are slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you sometimes go backwards in order to go forward. And along the way, there are even some rock slides and sudden storms that impede your progress and make your, your, tra your travel more difficult. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are these frequent signs that read, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Now, what we learn is that God's methods, though, are often very different than the methods we would choose to deliver us from our disappointments. In fact, God will surprise us with his methods, which brings us to our very first principle here that we learn in the book of Ruth, that God may use a series of zigzags. God may use a series of zigzags. In fact, he may even use a series of, can we say, setbacks to deliver us rather than a straight line. The story of Ruth, if you haven't figured it out by now, let me tell you, it's a series of zigzags. In fact, you could even say there's a few setbacks along the way in the journey of Ruth and Naomi. Rather than a straight line to their redemption, to their deliverance of their disappointment in life. Just a quick overview, if you remember back in chapter 1, Naomi and her husband and two sons, they moved to Moab in search of food in the midst of this famine that has hit their homeland of Bethlehem. And then Naomi's husband, what? He dies. And her sons marry Moabite women, and ten years later her, her two sons die, now leaving behind these three grieving widows. And even though Ruth stays with her mother-in-law, chapter 1 ends with Naomi's bitter complaint against God. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has now brought me back empty to Bethlehem. The Almighty had dealt bitterly with me. Not exactly a straight line to her deliverance of disappointment. A zigzag, a setback. You go to chapter 2, and Naomi is now filled with new hope because Boaz appears on the scene as a possible husband for Ruth. But Boaz doesn't propose to Ruth. He doesn't make any moves towards her. At least that's not the way it seems at first. And so the chapter closes brimming with hope, but also with this great uncertainty about how all these things might work out. And then we come to chapter 3. And Naomi and Ruth, they make this, this bold and risky move in the middle of the night. Ruth, if you remember, goes to Boaz on the threshing floor and tells him, hey, listen, I want you to spread your garment or your wing over me as my husband. But right when the tragedy of Ruth's widowhood seems to be resolved in a beautiful love story here, a rocky mountain boulder rolls out onto the road of Ruth's life. 
there's another man who, according to Jewish custom, has first rights to redeem the land and to marry Ruth. And so chapter 3, again, ends in a suspense of another setback and a zigzag. And again, we are now left wondering, will God ever deliver Ruth and Naomi from their disappointments in life? Will he come through for them? Or will he just leave them hanging on? As chapter 4 opens, we see that Boaz wasted no time in seeking a resolution on Ruth's behalf. Notice what it says again in Ruth 4, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the near relative or kinsman of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, Hey, come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten more of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Now the city gate, in case you're wondering why they went to the city gate, in that culture in those days, the city gate was the place where kind of official meetings took place and where legal business was transacted. It was there Boaz encountered this mysterious other relative, this Mr. So-and-so, the man with no name. So Boaz summons him. He summons ten elders of the city to be witnesses to sit down with him. And then Boaz lays out the situation to the other relative. He basically says, here's the deal, guy. Listen up. And you'll notice what he tells him in verses 3 through 4. Then he said to the near kinsman, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you. I like how Boaz says that. I thought to inform you. Saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, because there is no one but you to redeem, and I, and I am next after you. And to our dismay, to our almost, we're just like, we can't believe it, this other relative says at the end of verse 4, what? I'll redeem it. And we're like going, what? No way. I mean, let's be honest. Who wants this guy to redeem the land? Does anybody want him to redeem it? I certainly don't. Nobody does. Why? We want Boaz to redeem the land because we want Boaz to marry Ruth. Interesting. And so again, there seems to be this setback, this zigzag, if you will. And the irony of this setback is, is being caused, get this, by good, by righteousness. I mean, this guy, this other relative with no name, I mean, he's only doing his duty. He's doing something good here. And so, yes, sometimes the rocky mountain road is all clogged up, not with boulders, but with good workmen just doing their duty. Road construction. How many of you enjoy road construction? I hate road construction. I know they're just doing their job and their duty and has to be done, but the traffic backup is ridiculous sometimes. And it seems like it takes forever for them to get done. And yet they're just doing their good job, their duty, if you will. And it's the same thing here. Sometimes our frustrations in life, our disappointments in life are not caused by sin, but also by ill-timed goodness or righteousness. But that's when we have to remember 
Hey, listen, God will deliver his people from disappointments, but he will do so in the most surprising ways. And so just when we're, when we're about to say, when everything within us wants to scream out, hey, stop the story here. Stop the movie. Don't let this guy marry Ruth. Boaz surprises him. And he does this with a little tiny detail in verse 5. Look what he says. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead on his inheritance. In other words, Boaz was saying, Oh, uh, sir, by the way, you know, don't you, that Naomi has a daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess? So when you do the part of the kinsman redeemer, you must also take her as your wife in order to raise up a child in the name of her dead husband, which means that you have to share the inheritance with him. And then to our relief, almost to our joy, satisfaction, our cheering, this man suddenly changes his mind, and he says in verse 6, and the near kinsman said, hey, listen, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my inheritance. You do it. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so now what are we all doing? We are cheering in the story. As Boaz gets through this zigzag pass on the Rocky Mountains, and he coasts downhill to the wedding feast with the beautiful young Ruth on his arm. What a great love story, right? Just the way it's supposed to work. And yet, there is this storm overhead that's brewing. That's still kind of hanging in the air. Ruth is still barren. She's still childless. Or at least she seems to be. Because back in Ruth, chapter 1, verse 4, we are told that Ruth had been married for how many years to Malin? Ten years she had been married, and there were no children. So even now, the suspense is not over in the story. Can you see why I said that God will often use a series of zigzags and setbacks to deliver us instead of a beeline? Listen, folks, life is one curve after another. And we never know what's coming ahead. But the story of Ruth teaches us that the best is yet to come if we are willing to turn to God and trust Him and wait. We finally see Ruth's deliverance in verse 13 when it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, let me just step back here for a moment and help us understand something. That one of the reasons that the book of Ruth was written is to help us see the signpost of God's grace at work in our lives. And to help us trust His grace, even when the storms of disappointment are so thick, we can't see the road in front of us, let alone the signs on the side of the road. And so what I want us to do very briefly here is I want us to go back and remind ourselves that it was God all along who acted to turn each setback into a stepping stone of joy. And that it is God in all of our bitter disappointments who is seeking to accomplish His good in our lives for His glory. 
Notice just three signposts of God's grace at work in the story of Ruth. Number one was the gift of Ruth herself. The gift of Ruth. When Naomi's whole life seemed to cave in back in Moab, it was God who gave Ruth to Naomi. In Ruth chapter 116, we learn that at the root of Ruth's commitment to Naomi is Ruth's commitment to God. When Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and then here's the kicker, in your God, my God. In other words, God is the one who has won Ruth's allegiance in Moab. So it was God that Naomi owed the amazing love and commitment of her daughter-in-law. In Ruth 2.12, it says that when Ruth came to Bethlehem with Naomi, she was coming to take refuge under the wings of God. Therefore, it is owing to God that Ruth, in the first place, left her family, left her home, left everything she knew in Moab in order to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem. And so all along, it was God who was turning Naomi's setback into joy, even when she was oblivious to his grace at work in her life. There was still a road sign where God was screaming out his grace. I'm at work, Naomi. I haven't forgotten about you. I I still care about you. And here's the proof. Read the sign. We see another sign. The second one was the preservation of Boaz. Naomi gives the impression in chapter 1 that there's no hope that Ruth could ever remarry and raise up children to continue the family line. But what is God doing? All the while, God is preserving a wealthy and godly man named Boaz to do just that. And the reason we know that this was God's doing is that Naomi admits this much in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, when she says, hey, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, the man is a relative of ours, one of our near kinsmen. And so now Naomi's beginning to recognize that behind the the accidental meeting of Ruth and Boaz in the fields was the the kindness of God at work, who has not forsaken the living and the dead. And then number three, the third road sign, was the conception of Ruth's son here in chapter 4. I mean, who was it that gave a baby to the barren womb of Ruth? Who was doing this? It was God. Now, what's interesting is that the townspeople pray for Boaz and Ruth. They know that Ruth was married for 10 years without a child. And so they remember Rachel, whose womb that the Lord had opened up long before. And then they pray that God will make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. You say, why Rachel and Leah? Well, hey, they're the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. They had a whole basket full of kids, if you will. And so the author makes it clear in verse 13 who caused this child to be conceived when it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he went into her, the who? Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Here's what I want you to take away. Right here we see again and again that it was God who was at work in the bitter setbacks of Naomi. 
When she lost her husband and sons, what did God do for her? He gave her Ruth. When she could think of no kinsman to raise up a child for the family name, what did God do for Ruth? I mean, for Naomi. God gave her Boaz. And when Baron Ruth married Boaz, what did God do then? He gave her the child. So the main lesson of Ruth is seen now in the life of Naomi. In fact, you know what we could call this book? Not the book of Ruth, but really the book of Naomi. Because the book is really more about her beginning to end, her deliverance from disappointment than it is Ruth's. God will deliver his people from disappointment, folks. But he will do so in the most surprising ways. So as Naomi learned firsthand, the best is yet to come. And we all shout hallelujah for that one. But God will surprise us in which he does it. He will surprise us with his methods. Listen, he often uses zigzags and setbacks instead of a straight line. I don't know about you. I hate zigzags. When we're on a journey traveling, and as I shared already, my family, we're getting ready to travel to Colorado on New Year's, and we'll drive across Kansas. And the good thing about driving across Kansas is what? Is a straight line. But the moment we hit the Rocky Mountains, what happens? You have all these zigzag setbacks and switchbacks, especially as you go up the Continental Divide and you go through the passes. And they wind and turn. And, and you're only going 20 miles, and it takes you forever, it seems like. Going across Kansas? Oh, man, you can fly across that state. We all like straight lines, but folks, listen to me. God doesn't always work in a straight line. He uses setbacks and zigzags to fulfill his goal and his purpose in our lives. Number two, the second truth we learn in the book of Ruth is God will surprise us with his timing. With his timing. Have you noticed in the book of Ruth that everything happens in God's timing? (laughs) Nothing seems to happen quickly here. There are no quick fixes to disappointments and complications. And yet what we learn is that God's timing is always perfect and it's always on time. So here's the principle we see in the story of Ruth. God may act slowly to deliver us rather than speedily. Now nowhere is this principle seen more clearly than again in the life of Naomi when Ruth finally gives birth to a son. I think that's one of the reasons why the focus is on Naomi instead of Ruth and Boaz in verses 14 and 17. Notice this with me, because this is really somewhat interesting. Notice what it says in Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It says, Then the women said to Naomi, they didn't say this to Ruth, they said it to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you, Naomi, this day without a near kinsman. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. I love the story that John Piper shared in a message. He shares how one day this grubby-looking fellow came walking into their church office up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he was looking for some help. And so Mr. Piper 
asked him, hey, what's, what's your name, sir? And he said, hard times. That's my name, hard times. Well, Naomi's name at the beginning of the book was hard times. In fact, we could call her hard times Naomi. And that's the way the author of the book wants us to meet her in the beginning. Because the lesson of the book is that God will deliver his people from, quote, hard times, but he may act slowly instead of speedily in doing so. Think about this with me, just Naomi's life. Her story, this, or the story of Ruth, it begins with Naomi's loss. Her husband dies, two sons die, but it ends with Naomi's gain. It begins with her emptiness, but it ends with her fullness. It begins with the death of her sons, but it now ends with the birth of a son. But for whom? Well, look what the women said in verse 17. There is, there is a, a son born to Naomi. Not to Ruth, but to Naomi. Why is that? To show, to show us and to show Naomi and to show the women of Bethlehem, that it is not true what Naomi had said about God back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 21. That the Lord had brought, brought her back empty from Moab. No wonder in verse 16 we read where it says, Naomi, she took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Listen, this was a clear sign that finally, after many, many, many long years, that Naomi's emptiness had now been replaced by fullness through God's grace. And if we could just learn, if we would just take the example of Naomi and model after her and learn to wait and trust in God, all our complaints about God would prove to be not true. Let me give you two observations about God's timing. Observations that aren't really fun to notice, but yet they're true nonetheless. And first observation is this, God may delay deliverance. God may delay his deliverance. I like how the New Living Translation paraphrases Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, the neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again. At last. At last, God has delivered Naomi from her disappointment she experienced many years earlier in her life. Talk about waiting on God for deliverance, and yet oftentimes waiting is what is best for us. Why? Well, because of the second observation, God's purpose is to teach us endurance. His purpose is to teach us endurance. Just look at what Paul writes in Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. He says, listen, we can rejoice too. When we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Listen, one thing waiting on God does for us is I think sometimes we start out waiting on God and we try to do it in our own power. We start out and we just kind of do, okay, God, you want me to wait? I'll wait. And we kind of grit our teeth and we bear it. And we wait in, in our own self and what we can do, how we, and we try to micromanage or control the stuff going on around us because we're waiting on God. And then after a few days for some, months for others, years, we begin to realize, 
man, I can't do this on my own. I'm becoming a basket case waiting. And what we begin to realize is if I'm going to wait on God, I've got to depend on God. I need his grace working on my life. And that's the essence of why God makes us wait sometimes, is he wants us to come to a point in our life where we admit it's not me, it's not my power, it's not what I can do, but it's me relying on him and depending on him through this. Yes, God will deliver his people from disappointment, but he will surprise us with his timing and how he does it. He may act slowly rather than speedily. The last truth we learn in the book of Ruth is God will surprise us with his perspective. With his perspective. All right, another, another movie question. Since we're on the theme of movies and cartoon movies at that, how many have seen the cartoon movie Ants? Anybody seen the cartoon movie Ants? Okay, quite a few of you. If you've seen the movie, then you know that most of the action follows this small-scale life of a neurotic worker ant in his quest to win the love of a princess ant. But as the movie ends, something happens. It's interesting. The camera pans outward to show the audience that everything in the movie has been taking place where? Remember? In Central Park in New York City. What the movie directors wanting to do by doing that, by panning out, is he's inviting the audience of the movie. He's inviting us to consider the parallels between the lives of the ants in the movie and the lives of the real people in Central Park walking all around them. And in the same way, the genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth serves the same function. We're invited. It's like the author of the book. God is inviting you and I to consider the bigger purpose of God in our own lives beyond what he was doing in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. You see, if this story of Ruth just ended in the little town of Bethlehem with an old grandmother hugging a new grandson, you know what? Most of us, we'd walk away going... I mean, that was, that was a great movie. We go, that, what a ch- great chick flick. Right, we walk away going, man, that's such a feel-good story. I'm glad it ended that way. I'm, I'm glad Naomi, the old grandmother, finally got to hug her grandson. We're, and we're happy. We have this feeling of happiness and euphoria that Ruth finally got her guy and they lived happily ever after. But the author, it's interesting, the author doesn't end the movie there. The author doesn't end the story there. He takes us beyond the simple story of girl meets boy and shows us the bigger purpose of God at work. And the author does this at the end of verse 17 specifically when it says, look at it, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. All of a sudden, for some of you, the lights are going off and you're connecting the dots. Because we begin to realize that all along in the story of Ruth, something far greater has been in the making than we could ever imagine. 
God was not only plotting for the immediate comfort and blessing of a few Jews in Bethlehem. Listen to me. God was preparing for the coming of Israel's greatest king, King David. And the name David, let me tell you, it carries with it the hope of the Messiah, which means there is hope for us. Beyond the cute baby and the happy grandmother, there is hope for us in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the final principle in the book of Ruth. God always has His ultimate purpose in view. He always has His ultimate purpose in view rather than our immediate comfort. You say, well, what's God's ultimate purpose? What is the purpose, the supreme purpose that he always has in view when he's working in the lives of his people? Folks, listen to me. That purpose is to glorify himself by redeeming us from our sins through his son, Jesus Christ. I think the Apostle Paul summarizes this purpose in a a great way. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It's not in your notes, but listen to it as I read how Paul describes this purpose of God for my life and for your life. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Listen, that's the purpose God was working towards in the book of Ruth. That's what the book of Ruth is all building towards. Was the coming of his son. To die on the cross. So that you and I could be redeemed from our sins and have the gift of eternal life. And what we see are two stories going on. We see the immediate story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, but we also now see the bigger story and the bigger purpose that God is accomplishing, and that is the redemption of mankind. Listen, is God concerned about your immediate needs in life? Does God care about what you're going through? Does he care about your little specific disappointment? Absolutely. We know that from the very book of Ruth, don't we? All we got to do is read the individual personal story of Naomi and Ruth to see God cares about me. He is working to accomplish something in my life. His good for his glory. Maybe not how I would write the story, but he's working. And understand he knows what's best. He will deliver me from my disappointment in life, but he will do so in the most surprising ways. I may be surprised by his method, because he's going to take me on a series of zigzags and setbacks, not a straight line. I may be surprised by his timing, because he's not going to work as fast as I want him to work. He works slowly rather than speedily. 
And most of all, I may be surprised by his perspective because while he's working in my life, he has a greater purpose in my life than just my holy comfort in this world. He has, as his main concern, not my temporal, immediate concern and needs, but my eternal needs at at his heart. Folks, he cares about your immediate needs, but he's more concerned about the eternal need of your salvation. That's his ultimate purpose. This is why God sent his son Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary. It's why we celebrate Christmas. And then to die on the cross for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty. And then to resurrect three days later so we might be redeemed from our sins so our emptiness might be replaced with the fullness of abundant life here on earth and eternal life in the presence of God Almighty. So perhaps a good question to ask as we come to a close of this book is have you been redeemed from your sins through Jesus Christ? Because that's God's ultimate purpose for you. Have you been redeemed? Like Ruth was redeemed by Boaz. And if you haven't figured it out by now, we are Ruth. We are the outsiders who have been invited to be a part of the family of God through the redemption of His Son, who is a picture of Boaz. And so have you been redeemed? If not, then just a moment here, during our response time, listen, you can cry out to God. You can pray, asking Him to forgive you of your sins, asking Him to redeem you by putting your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ to save you and redeem you. Listen, if you haven't been redeemed, then do so today. This whole series on the book of Ruth has been about finding hope in a disappointing world. And so as we conclude, let's let's answer one last question one last time. And that is, how do we find hope in a disappointing world or disappointing times? Let's look at it. God will deliver us in disappointing times, but we must turn to him and then look for the surprising ways that he works. Listen, I, I hope through this series, through this study, that you've learned that God is always working. God is always working. So turn to Him and then look for the surprising ways that He works. Yes, I have to be honest with you. Sometimes His goodness and grace, it is so obvious we can't miss it. It's right in front of our face. We can't miss it, it's so obvious. And yet at other times, it seems that we can't find it. He's nowhere to be seen. Where is God working? But no matter what, God is always at work in our lives. He may surprise you with His methods, with His timing and His perspective, but God will deliver us in disappointing times. So turn to Him. Trust Him. And then look how He works in your life. Look for His goodness and His grace, because it is there, even in the disappointments of life. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to You this morning, I pray and ask that the truths and the principles that we have seen in the book of Ruth will penetrate our hearts. And Lord, we claim the promises that You have shown us, that You are always at work in our lives. You are seeking to deliver us. And yet, Lord, it's not always in the way that we want. It's not always in the timetable that we want. And it's not always in the perspective that we want. And yet, Lord, you are always working to accomplish your good for your glory. And then, Lord, as we think about the bigger purpose of what you're trying to accomplish, and that is the redemption of each man and woman here, that they may be redeemed from their sin by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in in the individual's hearts, and they would cry out to you, they would pray to confess you as Lord and Savior, they would pray and ask for you to forgive them of their sins and to save them and to redeem them and to grant them the gift of abundant and eternal life. Lord, for those of us who already know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we would consider ourselves Christ followers. I pray that we would learn to turn to Christ and to you, and to look for the ways that you work in our lives. Lord, as we come to this response time now, may your spirit work, and may we respond as you see fit. In your name we pray, amen. As the praise team sings, I want to encourage you to respond right here, right now, right where you're sitting. Do business with the Lord. If you need to come to him for the first time, then do so. Whatever however God is leading. Respond